From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's no mincing words when you speak with one of the state's leading economists. So we're looking at a recession at the national level. I think the real question is, do we see a bounce back that's relatively rapid, or do we see a bounce back that's much slower, more prolonged? What industries in Colorado are most vulnerable and best positioned in the face of coronavirus? Then, voter suppression throughout history has been disguised as safeguarding elections. I mean, it's got red, white, and blue flag waving all over it. Who doesn't want to fight for the sanctity of democracy? With a big election this year and a century after the adoption of the 19th Amendment, what one African-American studies professor calls Jim Crow 2.0. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Never before have we had such a high volume of impacted workers. That's what the head of the state labor department said Tuesday as he watched unemployment claims surge. It is clear that coronavirus is claiming lives and livelihoods. To start, a few words from a business owner who's trying everything she can to hold on to her employees. Lorena Cantoravisi owns Maria Empanada. She's had to close three of her five restaurants across Metro Denver. At the remaining ones, they're adjusting operations. So minimizing hours, yes making some switch in the locations that are opening. So basically, if one employee was working in one location, I can place them in another one and switching. She says Maria Empanada is partnering with other restaurants at its Aurora location to offer curbside service. But the ban on dining in takes a toll. To see my restaurant with empty tables is breaking my heart. Is breaking my heart. I am sitting with my computer in one of the tables, so I don't see it so empty, at least it's me there. And I'm making sure that I say thank you to every single customer that that comes and cross the doors, just for supporting us, you know, because they are supporting us. And that's that's beautiful. The economic effects of COVID-19 are so vast, they can seem hard to fathom, from the corner bar to a roller coaster stock market. But let's try to get our heads around the unfathomable. Economist Rich Wabakind from the CU Boulder Leeds School of Business is on the line. And Richard, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. I want to harken back to the terrorist attacks of 9-11, because we had you on this show right after... And to our surprise, you were in a hotel next to the Twin Towers. The reason I bring this up is it seems like that was the last time the country, the globe, was in a kind of unified state of shock, disbelief. There were obvious economic repercussions. Rich, is 9-11 a good comparison? It's a good comparison in the sense of global unity. It's a bad comparison in the sense of we're able to bring that under control much more quickly than we uh, are with this global pandemic. So it's creating more long-term fear right now in the minds of people. The idea being that the pandemic could last many weeks, perhaps months. You know, in 9-11, there was a concern that there would be a run on the banks and the financial markets would get disrupted. The Fed stepped in, put a lot of liquidity in the system, And it turned out within a couple of days not to be an issue, so it didn't sort of trigger anything at that point. 
uh, now you're talking about something that, at least in terms of the economic impact, is going to be going on for, we think, at least two quarters, significantly uh, lowering GDP. And much more importantly, as you highlighted, the business next door, the small business, the person who works at that small business, uh, certainly getting disrupted at a very high level. Okay, that phrase you used, a run on the banks, I, I think immediately of the Great Depression. This is why the FDIC was created, you know, to create some certainty around the banking system. Is a run on the banks something we need to worry about in modern life? It isn't because the Fed has been very active. Uh, they're uh, meeting on Saturday and, and discussion on Sunday in the press. They talked about adding a tremendous amount of liquidity to the system. So they're much more on top of the situation than the, than the 1930s. But certainly when you see all this drop out of the stock market and you see people getting nervous, we're seeing people looking for safe havens, whether it's cash or cash equivalents, which is where a lot of it's going, but people could be buying gold or buying some other type of investment, but they're taking their money out of the market and they're trying to put it someplace where it's safe. All right. The most recent unemployment numbers came out Monday for January. The rate held steady 2.5 percent, modest job growth. Uh, Richard, it seems like those figures might as well be a century old, given how different the time is they reflect. Is a recession inevitable now? And remind us of the specific definition of a recession. Well, most people think of the sort of thumbnail description of a recession as two quarters of negative GDP growth. We're going into two quarters nationally of negative growth for sure at this point, with all of the retail shutdown and major cities shutting down, the announcements in San Francisco, putting people into shelter status at this point. So we're looking at a recession at the national level. I think the real question is, do we see a bounce back that's relatively rapid, or do we see a bounce back that's much slower, more prolonged? And what would help determine that? If the health scare goes away and we can reopen retail and we reopen restaurants and those types of things, I think you'll see the economy go back to a relatively healthy status, you know, by no later than I would say the end of the year, maybe even the third quarter, but certainly the fourth quarter. The numbers going into this were so strong, there were uh, no real excesses in the markets. You know, housing market wasn't overinflated. The tech stocks weren't overinflated. So you had a really stable financial situation going into this pandemic. And all of that means that in the recovery, we really need to have a recovery of the real economy, not a recovery of the financial economy, which we needed in 2008. That's an interesting distinction. Help me understand that better. The major financial recessions in the U.S. were the 1930s and 2008. And we look at financial recessions, we really focus on the fact that not only is output down, GDP is down, all of the sort of traditional things, but the lending capability of the system is broken and typically takes a long time for recovery. A more traditional downturn like we're seeing that's being caused right now the financial instruments are still in place. The banking system is still in place. Mm. So we have all the lending mechanisms there. So when the problem is over, people can go back to sort of a more normal way of life in a much more rapid way. They can borrow for their small business. They can borrow for a home, all of those types of things, the credit's available. But that assumes, of course, that you emerge from this 
in any sort of shape to ask for credit. It does. And that's why some of the uh, bills that were being discussed in Washington, D.C. are very important in terms of you know, medical payments and a guaranteed uh, medical leave and backing the unemployment insurance system and the SBA loans, I should add as well, they've, which they have already passed. All of those are in place to try to make sure that these businesses survive through the next, you know, four to six months. SBA, the Small Business Administration. Richard Wabakind, economist at CU Boulder, according to the State Department of Labor and Unemployment, Two of the largest categories of work in Colorado are government and professional business services. I think of those folks generally as ones who can work from home. Will that soften the impact in Colorado? I think it certainly should. When we look at the government employment, of course, a lot of it is state and most of it is local. But we also have the federal employment with the federal labs and so on. And so all of that together enables people to have more facility to continue to work, to continue to be productive. And that is definitely true with professional and business services, with the exception of those people working in very cyber secure types of facilities that are working on things that really can't be done out of the, the home. They need to be oh. done in a very, very much a lockdown type of place. Well, let's speak to Colorado's most vulnerable industries and, you know... The, the people who work in them. That's fundamentally what we're talking about. Well, I think you have to start with tourism. The dramatic decline in conferences coming is really going to cut down on the hotel rooms significantly. So accommodations and food services takes, I think, the biggest single hit. Retail, meaning brick and mortar retail, obviously people are going to be doing less of that. And some stores have cut back their hours already to support the antivirus campaign, if you will. Many of the things we're seeing canceled, like the events we're seeing canceled, or even things like athletic clubs fit into that category. Those are all areas that I hope, after this thing ends, will bounce back fairly quickly. I mean, people will miss their uh, health club, uh, already are uh, missing their health club. You know, restaurants, I think, will go back out and have restaurant meals. So those are sort of quick bounce back places. The other sector right now that we're seeing taking a pretty big hit is the energy sector. Now, some of that is being driven, of course, by the OPEC, uh, lack of an OPEC agreement that occurred about a month ago. But in addition, global growth, which was forecast to be 2%, is now being suggested to be closer to 1%. So when you see global growth, uh, literally growth rate cut in half, you're really talking about a lot less demand for energy in a global context And that's also weakening demand for fossil fuels. Uh, Richard Wabakind, I wonder if I might use a kind of painful metaphor here, which is that we know the virus is especially lethal for those who are immunocompromised. I wonder if that is similar to how it will affect business. That is to say, if you entered this period already weak, if it had to do with your sales or your profits, anything compromised about your business, if that is who we will see remain shuttered after the pandemic is over, is there actually a biological metaphor that can be used for the economy? Well, there is. We always talk about the fact that in recessions in general, not just this particular recession, Weak businesses 
disappear and not reopen. They go under, if you will. Businesses that were struggling more are disappearing. The ones that are stronger survive, and then new businesses come in to you know replace them that might be a more efficient, better use of capital and labor and all of those types of things. Now, we have been so strong in Colorado for so long that I think most of the businesses are in pretty good shape. The area of concern for me continues to be the restaurant area because it's a, a low-margin area to start with. And we've seen some of those businesses cutting back before this because they couldn't get labor that was affordable. So that area, we may see more businesses compromised, if you will, by this event. I know you're a, a professor, Richard Wabakin, but I have to think that this moment, this historic moment, also makes you a student. What are you learning right now? What questions are you raising? I'd just like to get inside your head a little bit before we go. Well, you're absolutely right. I tend to think, having been on the earth for quite a while at this point, that you see everything and then you quickly are humbled by the fact that you really haven't seen everything. So you are trying to figure out how can you be more aware of those things. We refer to them in the business as black swans. Back in January, I referred to coronavirus as a baby black swan, not expecting it to grow into what it's grown into today. So you have to be prepared for these things, and we have to be more uh, agile. So yes, a student, you can understand the economic variables, and you can even think you're good at modeling. But at the end of the day, there are things that are outside the model that are very difficult. Right now, you know, we're having difficulty figuring out forecasts because we don't know the certainty of how long this is going to last. Oh. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Stay healthy, Richard. I'm trying my best. I'm over that age threshold. <laughs> <laughs> Economist Richard Wabakind from CU Boulder's Lead School of Business on the economic realities of coronavirus in Colorado. Speaking of CU Boulder, the school has canceled in-person commencement ceremonies chances are you're spending more time away from people than usual. The office conference table becomes a teleconference. You've been laid off and you're missing friends. Maybe you're elderly, feeling leashed to your home and sorting through fears. The idea of weeks, maybe even months of isolation can feel daunting. It's why we reached out to Rick Ginsburg. He's president of the Colorado Psychological Association, uh, he's in our studio, sitting a good six feet away from me. And welcome to the program, Rick. Thanks so much for having me. This idea of social distancing, of isolation, has had a little bit of time to sink in. What concerns people about it? What sorts of emotions are you hearing? Well, what people are generally experiencing is just a complete upheaval of their regular patterns of life. Yeah. And so what they are feeling are a wide range of emotions uh, that are often associated with what we expect um, people to feel when they feel grief because they're, they're losing all of their normal patterns. So there's a lot of denial, there's a lot of anger, um, there's a lot of, of fear and loneliness and um, maybe even some bargaining about how they can get out of this and, and ultimately some acceptance. That is fascinating to think of this as grief because it is loss. It is loss of the familiar. Right. Absolutely. Meanwhile, we are left in many cases alone or with small groups of people to stew about our own health. Indeed. Uh, and it doesn't strike me as a very supportive environment when you are perseverating on 
your runny nose or that you know tickle in your throat. That is true. Um, I think what a lot of people are experiencing right now, what we're seeing, and, and probably what many of us are experiencing is just this sense of hypervigilance. Every time we touch our face or we touch a doorknob, and some of this is really good and it's adaptive, um, and some of it kind of careens off into an area that just uh, excites our central nervous system and doesn't let us uh, be calm and be uh, able to go on with our lives in a normal way. I don't want to use our time together just to describe what's happening to us. I'd like to talk about some solutions. So sure. to the idea of grief, mm-hmm. uh, what what do we learn from death, for instance, uh, the loss of a loved one, that we could apply to the grief we're feeling for the loss of our habits and our routines. Mm -hmm. One of the most important things to think about is that we're not supposed to emotionally be ourselves right now. And giving ourselves the uh, permission and the acceptance around our own disrupted emotions. And at the same time, we want to be able to um, hold on to the things that help us feel in control and, and make us feel strong and, and supported and um, safe and secure. Okay, so what I hear you saying is it's okay to be a little messy right now. Absolutely. Okay. I, think, I think messy, <laughs> in some ways, emotionally messy is really to be expected and, and normal and likely healthy. Okay, so have some tolerance for that in yourself and perhaps those who share your household. Absolutely. And then um, to the second part of what you said there, just expound a little bit more on the kinds of tools you'd point to. Right. Well, so many of us right now feel like we uh, are out of control. There's there's so much that we can't control. Yeah. And so putting little pieces into our lives and relying um, on things in our lives that give us a sense of control, even if those are really simple things, giving ourselves the uh, ability to make decisions around, are we going to have coffee or tea? Are we going to text someone today and have that conversation? Are we not going to? Um, Gives us a sense of self-efficacy that can um, help ground us in this uh, sort of tumultuous time. I'm trying to think who gave me this advice, but the idea that you should make your bed in the morning because it's it's something you can check off your list. Right. Maybe this is the time to make your bed. A- absolutely. Not only make your bed, but also understand that your your nerves are going to be a little frayed right now. So all of those things that you've been putting off, uh, all of those self-care pieces that you can do safely within your environment, you should really, now's the time to do them. Do I hear you saying build a new ritual, build a new normal? Yeah, uh, and, and you can also rely on some of your old normals um, or some of the things that you've been wanting to do that you can do, uh, again, within your sort of limited environment. Um, and that might be practicing meditation or it might be reading a little bit more. Anything that kind of takes your mind off of what is happening, I think, can be pretty useful right now. I have seen on social media a lot of people finding this as an opportunity to reconnect with their gardens, with cooking, with baking. Uh, these things might have felt like a luxury in another time. Mm-hmm. They may become essential to our mental health. How do I know if my mental health is on a true decline and that I should seek help? I mean, I think so many of us are focused right now on whether we should call our doctors about, again, the tickle in our throat. Right. But I, I think that we should be mindful of when 
the phone ought to be picked up and we should call a therapist. Absolutely. And, and there are many therapists right now in the community who are continuing to work and as robustly as they have been, um, they're just finding different ways to do that in, in remote ways and secure ways. And Telemedicine so, applying to mental health. And so I do encourage people to be proactive in their mental health with this understanding that they are going to be pretty off and they can seek some perspective and some guidance from some professional help. But some of the signs people might be seeing is that they're uh, particularly more distressed, they're crying a lot, they're very unmotivated, and of course that they're more anxious than usual. And if you're finding that uh, your normal coping mechanisms or even some of your new ones aren't helping and you feel stuck, um, you might just need a nudge from somebody else who can give you some perspective and some ideas. What about folks who may not have the resources to pay for therapy? Mm -hmm. Are you seeing efforts being mounted to help if there's not a safety net? Well, uh, one of the beautiful things about um, these difficult times that we're going through is that you're seeing a lot of resilience and a lot of people coming together. And it's important to know that um, humankind generally finds a way to support one another and themselves um, in times of distress. And we've done that throughout throughout our history. And so... What, if it, what does that mean if I don't have insurance? Uh, what does that mean? I think it means... Um, relying on friends, loved ones, neighbors, um, to the extent that you can, connecting with people um, who are having common experiences and opening up a little bit about um, helping out and um, just assisting one another emotionally to the extent that people can as, as lay people. It is also true that many folks in Colorado, as we explored in the previous interview, uh, are able to work from home. There's mm -hmm. something about our economy the professional services uh, that mean a lot of folks are kind of isolated, but connected at the same time virtually. Mm. What a strange psychological place that is. Well, certainly. And I think we've been, um, those of us who are a little bit older, uh, like myself, sometimes give a hard time to the younger generation in terms of how they're using technology to connect. And ironically, that's exactly what we're relying on right now in a wide variety of ways, email, text, uh, FaceTime. And this would be a lot different if we didn't have those tools at our disposal. And yet it's also good to put those tools down. I've taught myself that coronavirus, social media and news is not the last thing I should look at when I go to bed. Uh, certainly. I mean, this these are stimulating uh, agitating types of um, types of information, and we need to know when we need to just take a take a breather and pick up a book, or um, you know, do a drawing or do something else that doesn't involve learning more about this. Rick Ginsburg, president of the Colorado Psychological Association. He's had a private practice in Denver since 2002. We're gathering stories of how coronavirus affects people's lives in big ways and small. Send us a voice memo with what has changed for you. Email it to news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with what our guest calls Jim Crow 2.0. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News. CPR News is here to deliver news that's meaningful to your life. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook, and I can hardly think of a time when that would be more important than it is right now. With unprecedented disruptions to people's financial, educational, and personal lives, CPR News is your companion on the radio, online, and on social media. Sign up for our newsletter, The Lookout, and keep tuning in for the latest on what efforts to contain the coronavirus mean for your life and how prepared Colorado is for the next phase of this challenge. Thanks for being with us here on CPR News.
Now, the other big story of 2020, the one that dominated the headlines before coronavirus, that's the election. Campaigns have had to go virtual. Ohio delayed its primary this week because of the epidemic. And a natural question is, given the circumstances, will the election be fair? A question that actually long precedes COVID-19. We're going to spend the remainder of the show with Carol Anderson, chair of African-American studies at Emory University in Atlanta. She's the author of One Person, No Vote. And we sat down while she was in Denver last month, hosted by History Colorado, not just because it's an election year, but it's the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which says the vote cannot be denied on the basis of sex. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You call voter suppression a huge problem for African-Americans. You refer to what's happening today as Jim Crow 2.0. You know, with longstanding constitutional and other legal protections in place, help people understand what you mean. And I'd like to say that it's not only just a problem for African-Americans, it's a problem for American democracy. Because what's happening is that we are eliminating swaths, large swaths of American citizens from being able to choose their representatives. And so the way that this works is that, you know, we know that we have the 15th Amendment of the Constitution that was a Reconstruction Amendment. It came out after the Civil War. And one of those pieces in there, and it says, the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race color, or previous condition of servitude. That almost seems rock solid, doesn't it? Certainly sounds ironclad. Not quite. When you think about that, that amendment came through in 1870. Since that time, we had massive disfranchisement with the Mississippi Plan of 1890 that systematically figured out how do you get around the 15th Amendment by using the societally imposed conditions on African Americans, like poverty, illiteracy because of not funding public schools, like the good character clause where you had to have three whites approve your your character uh, before you could vote, all of those sorts of, the white primary, all of these sorts of measures. By the time we got to 1940, Only 3% of African-Americans were registered to vote in the South. 3%. This is also the same period of time in which we would have seen poll taxes, right? Absolutely. So we're seeing the poll tax. um, That was also part of the Mississippi plan. And the way the poll tax worked was, and remember that voter suppression always sounds reasonable. It always sounds like it's in service to protecting democracy, when in fact, it's anything but. And Interesting. So, so what, what is, messages are used? Yeah. Yeah. So it says, so what the Mississippi state legislature said was in 1890, we are here to end corruption in our elections, end corruption at the ballot box. And so we have a series of measures here that will guarantee the sanctity of the right to vote, guarantee the sanctity of the ballot box, guarantee the sanctity of democracy. I mean, it's got red, white, and blue flag waving all over it. Who doesn't want to fight for the sanctity of democracy? Who doesn't want to ensure that our elections are clean and that when you vote and you cast that ballot, that it is counted and your representative if your representative gets the most votes. I mean, this is flag-waving USA, yay, except what it actually was designed to do was to stop American citizens from voting. 
And what was the justification in particular of a poll tax? And the justification for the poll tax is that it said democracy is expensive. You know, you're having all of these elections, and so you got to have a place where people are casting their ballots. You got to have people who are taking the ballots. You got to have people who are counting the ballots. And if you really believed in democracy, you would be willing to pay a small fee, a small tax in order to ensure that democracy ran smoothly. So you see how that language also puts the onus on the individual and not the state. Okay, so this still sounds like... Reasonable. Well, I don't know about reasonable, but it sounds like history. It sounds like something that happened in the past. And you say these currents continue. Talk to me about the 2.0. Absolutely. One of the the significant breaches. So remember, we had the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which finally put some heft behind the 15th Amendment of the Constitution. But the Supreme Court's decision in 2013, Shelby County v. Holder, is where the U.S. Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, gutted what is called the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act. What the preclearance provision did was it said that states that had had a history of discriminating against its citizens. Many of them southern states, though not all. Not all, but many, um, because you had to have a demonstrated history of discrimination and you had to use one of those devices from the uh, the Mississippi plan, such as a poll tax, such as a literacy test. If you had those two things working together and you had fewer than 50 percent of your age eligible adults registered to vote, it was like a canary in the mind. You knew something was really sick and twisted, toxic happening in that democracy. And if you were going to make any changes to how people voted, you had to run that by the authorities, essentially, right. the preclearance. Right. You had to run it by the U.S. Department of Justice or by the federal courts in D.C. Now, the high court ruled that section of the Voting Rights Act unconstitutional because they said it was based on an old formula. I'm just quoting the Brennan Center here. As a practical matter, it means that this section is inoperable until Congress enacts a new formula, which the decision invited Congress to do. Do you have faith that Congress would act? Not this Congress. So what we saw coming in from the House of Representatives um, after the 2018 election. So in 2019, the House of Representatives passed H.R. 1, which was a series of voting rights measures. And there also has been just laying in Congress two measures to re-up the Voting Rights Act. None of those measures have have gotten through a Republican-dominated Senate. Okay, you use the term Republican there. Oh, yes. Is this a partisan issue? That is to say, do you see more violations, uh, in your mind, by one party than another? I would say that there is absolute rock-solid evidence that it is, unfortunately, that the right to vote is a partisan issue. And it doesn't need to be. It shouldn't be. It is about American democracy. Um, But what we're seeing, and so I'm getting ready to do some quick history here again, is that after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 65, you saw the Southern Democrats break away from the Democratic Party. And they were wooed into and moved into the Republican Party. 
that group, then basically the toxin that they brought of anti-civil rights, anti-blackness, anti-anti, began to take over the moderates in the Republican Party and move the Republican Party so far to the right that as the demographics in America changed, that party's policies couldn't resonate. And so the response was to figure out how do we stop key segments of the voting population who cannot resonate with our policies? How do we stop them from voting? And so that's why you begin to see these kinds of targets that also then sound very reasonable until you pull it back and you see the targeting. I'll take yeah, my give me Yeah, give me the example. Yeah, so you, you talked about the arguments early on to reduce the vote as being kind of wrapped in the flag and, you know, carried in the talons of, <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a bald eagle. Where do you hear that today? And so you hear it in terms of stopping voter fraud. And, you know, they're trying to steal our elections. We have all of these non-citizens that are trying to vote. And so we must protect democracy. You heard that coming out of, of President Trump as he talked about voter fraud and people trying to steal the election. You hear that coming out of uh, Governor Kemp out of Georgia. You hear that in that language. So let me give you some specifics because we're talking generalities here. In North Carolina, for instance, when uh, the Republicans took over in North Carolina after the 2010 election, they began to implement a series of policies. What they did, though, was they asked for racialized data on a series of things. One of that dealt with who has what types of IDs by race, what do they have and what don't they have? And then the North Carolina legislature crafted the voter ID law to emphasize the kinds of IDs that whites have and de-emphasize the kinds of IDs that African-Americans have. And there's evidence pointing to this. There's incredible um, heart-wrenching evidence about this. And this is what led the Fourth Circuit to look at North Carolina in a lawsuit and say, you have targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. This law is racially discriminatory. You know, in a piece late last year for the Brookings Institution, uh, sociologist Rashawn Ray and Pastor Mark Whitlock of an AME mega church in Maryland wrote, Black people not wanting to vote simply isn't empirically true relative to other racial groups. The reason I bring this up is that there is a longstanding kind of narrative in this country, like... Black folk don't vote. Uh, And they go on to say, we must take into account the ways that blacks are systematically denied the ability to vote. With the rolling back of the Voting Rights Act, we're seeing from North Carolina, as you mentioned, to Texas and the upper Midwest, the ways that black voters are targeted. So it, it goes on, before we chastise black people, can we address voter disenfranchisement and gerrymandering and set the record straight on voter turnout? Absolutely. I mean, one of the the things that led me to, in fact, write One Person No Vote was after the 2016 election, the pundits are all talking. And one of the first things that comes out is that, well, you know, black people just didn't show up for Hillary. They just didn't show up. You know, it's because Hillary is Hillary. You know, so black people just stayed home. And in fact, black voter turnout went down by 7 percent in the 2016 presidential election from the 2012 election. But that was the 2016 was the first 
presidential election in 50 years without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And so having pundits not take into account that the law that had been in place, put in place to ensure that you had access to the ballot box, that that law had been gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court. So you saw states doing things like these voter ID laws where, for instance, in Alabama, where your driver's license counts, but your public housing ID doesn't count for a government-issued photo ID, and where the governor then shuts down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties. Um, So you create an obstacle based on the lie of voter fraud, and then you create an obstacle to the obstacle, the inability to be able to get access to getting that ID. I just want to say that there are more claims of voter fraud than there seem to be actual cases of them. It's not that they don't exist, but I think the reporting shows very clearly that they are often overstated. Vastly overstated. Justin Levitt, a law professor out of California, he did a study from 2000 to 2014. He added up all of the votes in the elections in the United States, and there were one billion votes. He found 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud out of one billion votes over 15 years. So that's about two a year. That's not the massive rampant voter fraud that we hear being just extolled all the time. Instead, we already have the mechanisms in place to catch it. So if we have the mechanisms in place, if voter fraud is not this massive rampant thing, then why do we have voter ID? Because it becomes a mechanism by saying, like in Texas, your student ID from the University of Texas doesn't count as a government-issued photo ID, but your gun registration card does. You can shape the electorate by figuring out which groups have what types of IDs and then making those the holy grail into access for the, to the ballot box. Texas's argument there was that the gun permit was issued by the state and consistent across Texas, which mm-hmm. is, you know, bigger than a lot of countries, and that university IDs were pretty specific to each school. Mm-hmm. And so that that was susceptible to fraud. Right. You, you think I sound like the reasonable voice from back in the day now? <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that you know, the, and that's what you hear. But think about it. So Texas doesn't say, OK, is there a way that we can make those IDs from our public universities? Um, so that, Consistent. Consistent. Mm-hmm. I mean, so instead of going that route, Texas chooses not to go that route. I mean, so this is fascinating because there's a nuance in the voter ID conversation I'm hearing here that I haven't heard elsewhere. It actually doesn't sound to me like you think it's unreasonable to ask for an ID, but that there are ways to craft such a law that wind up being discriminatory. Okay, but that's not what I'm saying. I do think it's unreasonable to ask. And I think it's unreasonable to ask. There'll be any number of people who disagree with you on that. I know that. Lord, do I know that. Um, Because it's unreasonable to ask because the foundation for asking for an ID is to stop all of this massive rampant voter fraud. Except the proponents of voter ID cannot point to cases of massive rampant voter fraud. So Greg Abbott, out of Texas, when he has to go before Judge Ramos to justify the voter ID law 
in Texas. And he says, we have massive rampant voter fraud. She says, how many? He's like, massive. How many? And he has to point to two cases out of 20 million votes. You think that this is a a solution in search of a problem, it sounds like. Absolutely. But but it strikes me that our confidence in the voting system is also very important. If we perceive it as whole, if we perceive it as having integrity, perhaps we are more likely to vote, to participate. And so part of what we have to understand are two things. One, the current impact of the voter ID law. So that in Wisconsin in the 2016 election... 8% of whites were blocked from voting because of the voter ID law. And over 25% of African Americans were blocked because of the voter ID law. So we're, we're seeing disparate impact, one. Two, the issue of confidence in the electoral system. We have to understand that the unease was a manufactured problem. We think of, and I'm going to take us back to the 2000 election, and we often think of that 2000. Bush, Bush Gore. Bush Gore. And I often Hanging think. Hanging chats. <laughs> and so we always go to Florida, but the issue for voter fraud, the way we understand it now, came out of Missouri. This is the St. Louis purging of voters, I think. Right. You write about this in the book. Yes. St. Louis illegally purged almost 50,000 voters, 49,000 plus voters, wiped them off the rolls, didn't tell them. They go to vote. Their names aren't on the rolls. They, the poll workers send them downtown to the Board of Elections. Board of Elections books are a hot mess. I think they did send out notices. The question is whether people got them. Right. I mean, it, it was an illegal purge. It was very clear that it was illegal. And so time was just wasted downtown and trying to get folks back on the books. And so as time is going down, the Democrats then sue to keep the polls open past seven o'clock because people have been downtown for hours. And this is all in the shadow, by the way, of the same day that that, that Florida's coming down. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. A narrative that you think gets lost. I, yeah, I absolutely believe that Missouri gets lost. And so the judge then rules that the polls can stay open until 10. Shortly after that ruling, the Republicans come in with another judge, a higher court, that rules that the polls have to shut down. So 45 minutes, so at 745, the polls shut down. So you've got a lot of people who haven't come through. Now, the narrative that uh, U.S. Senator Kit Bond and the Secretary of State in Missouri, Matt Blunt, are saying is that what the Democrats were trying to do was to create massive voter fraud. And Kit Bond pointed to, you know, look, you've got all of these people who are, you know, we've got dead people voting. We've got dogs on the rolls voting. We've got all of these vacant lots where people are coming back using the addresses from these vacant lots. They're trying to steal the election. And that language of stealing the election and voter fraud then took hold as Bond went into Congress, as Congress is passing the Help America Vote Act to deal with the lack of confidence coming out of Florida and the hanging chads. And so the language of voter fraud and its solution, voter IDs, then gets put into federal law as if that voter fraud was real. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I love local newspapers, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch did an investigation into Senator Bond's charges. 
there was one dog on the rolls named Ritzy Meckler. Um, his owners thought it would be really funny to register their dog to vote. But there's no evidence that Ritzy or Lassie or Rin Tin Tin <laughs> voted, okay? Um, there was a dead guy on the rolls, but there's no evidence that he actually voted. And those vacant lots... The city hadn't updated its list. And so at least 82 percent of those so-called vacant lots actually had homes on them. So as they're going through and investigating this, they found perhaps four cases of something awry with voters. But they noted that voter ID laws would not have stopped those four voters. Mm. But you get this creating almost like a McCarthyist red scare, um, the sphere of communism, communism, communism. We get the same kind of PR about the fear of voter fraud, voter fraud, that then gets the public to say, protect us. Carol, you're in Colorado. You know this. Uh, and I want to ask you a few questions about voting here. So this state recently scrapped its presidential caucuses in favor of a Super Tuesday primary. There are still caucuses for down-ballot races. Mm-hmm. I-, I wonder what your assessment is of caucuses versus primaries. I see caucuses as some of the least democratic methods of selecting candidates. And I think... And yet it feels so grassroots. It feels people, so... Gr- people gathering in a gymnasium. Right? Like, that's so beautiful. If you beautiful. get child care, if you, you don't work that evening, or you know you're working two jobs. I mean, so it, it the caucuses and, and people gathering, it feels so grassroots, but it's actually quite exclusionary on so many different ways. Whereas the primaries, if done correctly really begins a kind of full embrace of American democracy. So I like going the primary route. It seems that Colorado doesn't trust either (laughs) Republicans or Democrats. Good. Because (laughs) with with Amendment Y, Mm -hmm. passed by Colorado voters in 2016, there's this independent board to draw new congressional district boundaries rather than having political parties Mm -hmm. do the divvying up. Mm -hmm. Do you think steps like that make voting more fair? Absolutely, because what we have seen, particularly with extreme partisan gerrymandering, is that... And it sounds like you, you see that from both sides. Oh, yes. I mean, when we, so when we've been talking about voter suppression, we've often been talking about the Republicans. There is one element of voter suppression where you also see the Democrats engaged, and that's in gerrymandering. And the reason why that's voter suppression is that because it draws the districts, not so you get one person, one vote, but that you overemphasize some districts and some populations and de-emphasize the electoral voices and votes of other populations. It is fundamentally wrong. And so what these nonpartisan redistricting commissions do is that instead of having the Democrats trying to draw the districts to keep more of their representatives or to get more representatives and more power or the Republicans trying to draw the districts to get more more of their representatives and more of the power. These independent, nonpartisan redistricting commissions really look at those kinds of standards about contiguous, compact, compact right. <laughs> right, and draw the districts so that you really do get fair representation. One person, one vote. Not a salamander-looking district, oh my which God. is how the gerrymandering got its name. Right. What about your own personal experience growing up, perhaps, formed the path you're on today? My father fought in World War II in a Jim Crow army, fighting for a democracy that wasn't going to fight for him. That 
is amazing to me. And he fought in Korea, too. He was career military. And then when he got out of the Army and we moved to Columbus, Ohio, my mother found a home on Oakland Park that she loved. Uh, Finally, no military housing. And, (laughs) (laughs) And the realtor said, no, that's not where you people live. I'll show you where you people live. And, you know, you begin to think about this. This is a man who has risked his life fighting for the United States of America. And in this moment, he's you people, unworthy of being able to purchase a home that his wife loves in a neighborhood that she loves. There's something really wrong with that. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Carol Anderson is chair of African-American studies at Emory University. She stopped by our studio during a visit to Denver to speak at History Colorado. Her most recent book is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. And that's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.